she likes to write letters. Before I left, that upon returning, we would begin a new series of sermons, and I feel that the information uh, that will be disseminated here will shortly impact our lives greatly. We have just finished a series on the just living by faith, the lively hope of the resurrection, and the kind of love that must be attained between God and man, and man and man. Now, I do not want you to mistake for a moment the importance of that series. It may not have been exciting or new, but it is fundamental and very, very important. There's nothing more important to you and to me than faith, hope, and love. Nothing more important to us than those three things. The first of the three, <clears throat> faith, Christ questioned whether he would find any on earth when he returns. It is a commodity in short supply, in other words. And he was speaking of the end time when he returns. The faith would be a very scarce thing for him to find. Where people actually live and walk by faith, not just parrot it, but actually have it. Add to that that of the three most important ingredients of Christianity, Christ expects almost a complete absence. The three greatest elements of Christianity. He expects hardly to find any of the first one named. And yet, unless we walk in faith, it is impossible to please him. We cannot walk by sight. It must be by faith in the eternal God's ability to deliver us, to guide us, to help us, to direct our lives as we follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. There is no way to overemphasize this point. That means, are we listening? That means that we must be willing to give up on anything in this earth that stands in the way of our walking as Christ walked. Any and every instruction of his word, for we are to live by every word of God and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. That is a tall order. That is a high standard, a standard which only one has lived up to, and you and I fall very far, far short of that every day that we live and breathe on this earth, but that's our goal and our purpose, and we have to be heading in that direction. We must be willing to give up anything on this earth that stands in the way of that walk. Father, mother, brother, sister, mate, job, profession, employment, our lifestyle, or anything <clears throat> that might make us feel uncomfortable or deprived of in giving up. Most Americans do not want to give up anything they have. We are spoiled, absolutely, sinfully rotten to the core. We live almost as if we were wrapped in a mattress 
and left in a bathtub. So nothing can hurt us. Nothing can harm us. We were so shocked when 911 happens because that couldn't happen here. That shook our comfort zone. And Americans do not like their comfort zone shaken. You don't, and I don't. We are a nation of people that wants to live in comfort and plenty and prosperity and peace. We want no ripples or ripples on the water. We want to be American. And don't anyone impinge upon that. And yet we see a different picture in the Bible, don't we? Does not God say we are called to a life of sacrifice? But if we're in the church, we're not to be walking the way we see our people walking. We're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1 So even though this world, and our nation in particular, does not like to sacrifice whatsoever, we are called to do just that. Now this spoiled approach to life, not walking by faith, but the things we see around us, the things that we enjoy and cherish, can have a devastating effect upon the second of the key ingredients to Christianity, and that is a lively hope. A lively hope can only be based upon faith and obedience. Trust that God will see us through and never forsake us nor leave us, and a lively hope that is based on obedience to all of his words. Now, you can have a hope against hope, as I explained in the series, but a lively hope comes from knowing that there's a very, very good chance you will be in the kingdom of God based upon your performance unmerited pardon that is augmented by obedience. I will show you my faith by my works, and through those works my hope is increased. Many in the church today have a false hope based on their own assessment of their Philadelphian stature in God's eyes and in their own eyes. That is a very dangerous posture to be in because human nature is very, very self-deceptive. The human heart is very deceitful. And it is easy not only to look at our comfort zone physically, but our comfort zone spiritually and say, I'm okay. I'm doing the basic things, and I'm trying to be good, Lord or whatever justification we might find for ourselves, so that we can have a spiritual comfort zone as well. Now, it is partially my job to shake you out of your spiritual comfort zone. And I will not be liked for that 
for the most part. But that's okay. The problem with receiving ourselves as to our true spiritual condition is that it can make hope abstract and detached when viewed in the light of scriptural and spiritual reality. It's easy to deceive ourselves about what we really are. We are to have the fruit of God's Spirit, and yet we evince a great deal of human nature, carnality, and the works of the flesh, don't we? as seen in our relationship to each other and to the world, and so on. So for hope to be a real, true, and lively hope, it must be based upon the reality of Scripture and our adherence to God's way of thinking and acting. Please realize there is in your mind a great opportunity for self-deception. Now finally, <coughs> The greatest of these three, faith, hope, and love, is love. Now, though it is the most valuable and precious of the three most important characteristics of the Christian, it will be sadly lacking at the end. We've already heard testimony that there would be hardly any faith, or would he find it when he comes to this earth? Now let's go to Matthew 24. Let's see what condition he will find the church in, because that's whom he's talking to here in Matthew 24. He's giving a lot of information here that matches up well with the six seals of Revelation. And he talks about famine and pestilence and earthquakes and so on in verse 7. Verse 9, <coughs> well, verse 8, all these things are the beginning of sorrows, just the beginning. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. That's you and me. That's the church today. And you shall be hated of all nations, all peoples on earth, for my name's sake. This has not yet been fulfilled, because the church isn't even really known of all peoples and nations. But at some time in the near future, in some way, perhaps yet unknown to us, the wrath and the hate of the whole world is going to turn on God's people. Isn't that what he's saying? Now, what will be the result of that? And then shall many be offended. We believe that we are unable to be offended, I guess. It says not to be easily offended, and yet it seems as humans we get offended pretty easily sometimes. Pretty easily offended at one another. And sometimes that offense goes on for months and years and is never repented of, moved on past and forgotten. It stays right there. Then shall many be offended, not just a few, but many, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. That's scary when you consider that in relationship to the church of God at the end time. 
many offended, betraying one another to the death, and hating one another. Dare that be any of us? And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. They'll tell them that this isn't so, I suppose. But notice what happens. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Many in the church will take offense, betray one another, hate one another, and the love of many will wax cold. Not a few, but many. It's a very scary thing when you think about it because he's talking about the people who are in the church today. Now, it may have applied in principle to all people through the ages since the New Testament church started. I would not deny that whatsoever. But this chapter is talking about the end of the age. It's talking about the final fulfillment of all this persecution and tribulation. It's talking very shortly after this about fleeing and about the return of Jesus Christ in the same chapter. So it's talking about you and me. It's talking about us. Be warned, brethren. Now, I'm not going to preach another sermon <clears throat> about the series that I just finished. But as we move from that series, let's not forget and let's carefully remember not to leave behind this most important of subjects, faith, hope, and love. The upcoming series may be more exciting and titillating in some ways because this was very basic to Christianity that we just went through. But before this series is finished, it will challenge your levels of faith, hope, and love. It will challenge them beyond any challenge you have ever met before. However, at best, it will only be a challenge of words. One that should be swept aside for the time being if it challenges your comfort levels, either physically or spiritually. The real challenge will be to follow through with God's instructions to us when the events, not merely the words, overtake us. Because some of the words you're going to hear in this upcoming series will turn to events fairly shortly. And it is a grim time. It is a time that they will deliver you up to be afflicted and kill you thinking they do God a service. I don't think it's a long way away. I will not define a long way, because I do not know the timing, <clears throat> but I feel it is fairly so. Now, prophecy is exciting to most people, for there is an innate curiosity about the future in us. That's why science fiction and futuristic movies sell well. We'd like to know 
what's coming up. We'd like to know what form it will take. There is a curiosity there in most people that goes beyond most people's curiosity about history. You find history bugs or nuts here and there. History is very similar to prophecy. One is a story you try to put together of the past based on words of men, things that have been written, things that are inscribed in broken pottery. It's a matter of trying to fit it all together and make a picture that is complete. History is a very, very difficult thing to put together. There's one area of history that I know is inviolable, and that's the historical record of the Bible. That I don't worry about. That I can depend upon. But some of the things about Hammurabi or somebody else might be questionable. Or, you know, I just picked their name out of it. So, it can be exciting. But always bear in mind that unless the basic elements of Christianity not only live but thrive in our lives, all prophetic understanding and even all knowledge of all Bible topics is useless, except for whatever intellectual vanity we might get out of it. Let's never forget what is important. And as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 13, we can speak in tongues, different languages, understand all mysteries. And there are some mysteries, aren't there? And we'll look at some. And all knowledge and have faith to literally move mountains. If I do not have the love of God flowing through and out from me, I am nothing. All those aforementioned things would be exciting to us to have as gifts or abilities. But without the love, we are nothing. Nothing is not much, is it? Nothing of value. Or, put another way, not worth preserving or saving. So I caution us, caution us, as we approach some prophetic things again, that we remember what is truly important. The prophecy is nothing if you do not live a truly Christian life. Because anyone who understood, and I do not claim to by any means, every nuance, every bit of timing, every technical detail of what is about to happen in this world ahead of us, if he understood every bit of it and didn't have faith, hope, and love, he wouldn't be a part of the kingdom of God. And having had knowledge of all those things that are going to happen wouldn't do you a whole lot of good, would it? So let's never forget what is truly important. All right, with that preface, <clears throat> let's move on. This is my 50th year of association with the end time church, now churches, of God. As a child, 
I heard HWA on XEG and XALO proclaiming from Juarez Chihuahua and other places in Mexico that America and the other white Anglo-Saxon Saxon relatives were Israel. I heard that those nations would soon be punished by a terrible carrying into captivity. One-third to die of famine and pestilence. One-third to die of the sword. One-third to be taken captive and a sword sent after those. Only roughly 10% would remain, and even of those, some would also be killed, according from Ezekiel 5. Now to me, as a small child, this was fascinating information. particularly to a child living in America, and he was proclaiming that my country, my people, my relatives, my friends would die. That was fascinating. My Uncle Cecil would come over every Friday evening, and he would bring Newsweek, Time, U.S. News, Look. Most of you have not even heard of the magazine called Look, probably, and other news magazines. And we would search diligently for any signs of these prophecies coming true. Friday night was a rap session, looking at all the prophetic things that hopefully we would be able to see. We read articles about drought anywhere in America. Look for those. For wild dog attacks in Alabama and Georgia. We look for evidence of hurricanes, tremors in California, statistics on divorce, teenage pregnancy, the German economy, any news. <clears throat> and there wasn't yet much on European unification. We looked for articles about the Nazis and especially Adolf Hitler sightings in Brazil and Argentina. We really did. And on and on. Anything the Pope said or did, for surely the Catholic Church was the mother of horrors, Babylon the Great. We looked for a stamp in people's hands and foreheads that would prevent work and enforce Sunday keeping by that beast from Revelation 13 that would number 666. We suspected Strauss of Germany, King Carlos of Spain, the Austrian nobility, and even Prince Charles. Examined a lot of people, added up their names in Greek. <coughs> we knew, didn't we? that a ten-nation dictatorship led by Germany would arise in Europe, ridden by the Catholic Church, and that they would attack and destroy America and all the other nations we defined as Israelitish and Jewish. <clears throat> Further, we had booklets entitled The U.S. and British Commonwealth in Prophecy, 1975 in Prophecy, Revelation Unveiled at Last, at least I saw a letter that someone wrote in for that booklet, it was actually to be unveiled, but they wanted it unveiled, but whatever. We had one called, Who is the Beast? And others. Now, I recite this information at this juncture for two primary purposes. First, to review what we have believed in historical context. Secondly, to show that I personally have been 
surrounded by, submersed in, steeped in, and poured full of these beliefs. Read that, not beliefs, but inevitable facts from early childhood. These self-evident and widely proclaimed truths were deeply embedded in me. There are few alive today who have a longer history of belief in the traditional worldview proclaimed by Herbert Armstrong, Werner Ted Armstrong, and the Worldwide Church of God than do I. Longevity doesn't mean anything in terms of spiritual growth. But what I'm saying is the traditional views we have held and I have held have been very, very dear to my little heart. Just as they have been very dear to your little hearts. So if we see any variance from that which can be shown by Scripture, I understand that there will be some initial shock, not awe, and perhaps some negative feedback. Okay? But I want you to know, you haven't believed anything from the past any harder than I have believed it. It's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. You need to understand that as we begin this series, it will challenge some of our most tightly held beliefs about prophecy. That is not to say that Herbert Armstrong was not on the right track, but what he understood 50 and even 20 years ago was somewhat different than the picture developing in the world today. It is important that we take a close look at some biblical entities and their Bible definitions. Some definitions of beasts, churches, and countries we took from Protestant commentators and assumed them to be correct. Herbert Armstrong read the Protestant commentaries, got some of his information from those commentaries, and preached it to us. <coughs> How much trust can you place in Protestant commentators? That's a question. <coughs> we did not. In every case, examine all the Bible evidence necessary to define those entities. There's where the rub comes. Indeed, Herbert Armstrong did not have today's world scene to compare to Scripture to help him specifically define all the end-time players. And I'll have to say, in retrospect, he had to have had help from God in interpreting the prophecies as well as he did from the perspective of 1940, 50, and 60. A lot has developed since then. A lot has developed which might change our view of some of those things somewhat. When you start talking 1940, 50, and 60, that's ancient history in the modern day <coughs> excuse me, movement of the church. What you could see in 1940 or 50 is far removed from the 
movement of world culture and politics toward the world scene we have in 2003. <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> in short, it's time to take a new look at America, at Europe, at the world, the beast, the whore, the true church, and what we see happening before our very eyes today. The overall form of prophecy, I think Herbert Armstrong understood fairly well. But the timing and the exact form of the end-time players were not as obvious then, perhaps, as they are now. And it's easier, I think, to see some of these things. But we must be careful to use the Bible to define the Bible, not Protestant commentators or ourselves, for that matter. So this series of sermons will challenge some of your and my long-held beliefs. <clears throat> Question. Who is Israel? I see no need to detail this subject, as I feel Mr. Armstrong was correct in defining modern-day Israel as the U.S. and British Commonwealth, Western Europe, Australia, South Africa, and wherever else the pale races who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had migrated. <clears throat> Abraham, as you will recall, descended from Shem. So did some other pale faces, such as the Assyrians. The difference is that Israel descended through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically Jacob, as even Jacob's own brother Esau is not Israelite, though descended from Abraham. It is only that line that went through Jacob that became Israel. So Abraham and Isaac had other children, Jacob had other children, but God chose to go through Jacob, I mean, through Abraham and Isaac, but God chose to go through Isaac's son Jacob, not Esau. So the Israelite line comes only through Jacob. Now this is review, and I know you know this. Now, there may be some question as to the identity of a few of the tribes of Israel in terms of their exact locations today. We published information in the 50s about that, and I think it was essentially correct. But since then, we've different ones have found that there might be a pocket of this tribe here and a pocket of that tribe there. And we may not have them completely uh, designated correctly. For one instance, there's been considerably uh, or considerable print to show that Ephraim is the U.S. and Manasseh is the United Kingdom, just a reverse of what we've always believed. Uh, I don't know that, but I do know an argument can be made in either direction. But be that as it may, the two are combined to form Joseph and are inextricably linked together and have the same fate in prophecy. So they are the leaders of Israel. So which is which might not make a lot of difference except in a few very specific prophecies, then it might make a, a difference. But they were historically and are today unquestionably the leaders of Israel, and the blind lead the blind, and all will fall in the ditch. That should be pretty clear. So the identity of modern-day Israel appears to me to be unquestionable. We have known that and has been correct all along. Let's move to another area, <clears throat> if you will be turning to Revelation 17, 18. 
Here we see, chapter 17 of Revelation, there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the wilderness, and I saw this scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now any good Protestant alive from 1500 A.D. down till today will tell you unequivocally that is the Catholic Church. Is that so? I believed that for a lot of years. I just accepted it. This woman will be drunk with the blood of the saints, says in the next verse, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And he wondered about her. The rest of that chapter and chapter 18 go on and describe him. We'll get to that later. But I have a question to pose today. <clears throat> Who is this great whore of Babylon today? And I will preface these remarks by saying this is almost as important to understand as who Israel is in analyzing end-time prophecy. Almost as important. And this may be the most startling understanding we will examine in this series. In that sense, I guess it should be saved up to last as it's dramatically different from what I have believed before, my cherished beliefs that I spoke of. You save those things for the end. But in so doing that, I would have a problem. Because this definition is absolutely imperative to understand end-time prophecy. And we need this definition given at the beginning. <coughs> It's quite different from what I believed up until five or six years ago when I began to comprehend that it wasn't the Catholic Church at all, but maybe someone else it was referring to. Now, trot out your objections, get them ready. I know there will be some somewhere. Although I used the Africans as somewhat of a pig, a guinea pig in this case, and ran some of this information by them, and they didn't have trouble with it. One or two exceptions, and I think that I knocked down most of the objections in those cases, because I can show in Scripture a different definition than that which Martin Luther and the other Protestants in the Reformation came up with. To them, the Catholic Church was the only bad thing on earth, basically. The Pope was the Antichrist. <clears throat> but you've got to understand who this whore is. 
if you're going to understand Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation. Got to understand it. Can't understand it without it. All right, let's see if the Bible itself can define this mysterious woman for us. Remember, it did say it's a mystery. Yet you can read commentaries written in 16, 17, 1800 that say there's no mystery whatsoever. It's obviously the Catholic Church. Couldn't be anything else. Now, what is a woman typical of in Bible language? What is she a symbol of? First thing that comes to your mind is a church, right? Yeah, probably so. And you are correct. Let's combine a couple of scriptures here. I want us to see that that is certainly a valid symbolism. Hebrews 12. <clears throat> In this chapter, he's saying, We're not come to Mount Sinai and to Moses. And I've gone over this ground many times, but I want to make a particular point here. We're not come to the Old Covenant. We're come to a New Covenant. We're come to new understanding. We're come to a better way. Because those people failed in the Old Testament, and God has given us an opportunity with better promises. So we don't go to Sinai and Moses. Verse 22, We are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is what we are approaching. Not Sinai, but we are approaching the city of God in the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, that's us, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So we are come to the church of the firstborn, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, aren't we? Those things are all synonymous. They're all one and the same. He lumps them together here. He explains an awful lot of biblical symbolism here. Now, I want to tie this thought with Revelation 21, because it mentions here that the church of the firstborn and the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem are one and the same. Let's see that confirmed and add one element to that in Revelation 21. This is about the new heavens and the new earth. And he saw in verse 2, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So that to the element of the things that Paul describes, John adds one other thing, a bride, a woman, if you will. Verse 9, the angel says to John, and he says it in the time of the seven last plagues. This is the time setting of the things that John is seeing from the angel in the vision. So one of those seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, you got the timing here, and talked with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. What I am about to show you, putting this in as clear English as I possibly can think of, what I am about to show you is the bride, the Lamb's wife, this woman who represents 
144,000. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. No change in the subject here. So I'm going to go show you something. And then he picked me up and took me there to see it. Isn't that plain English? He showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. So this bride, this woman who's marrying Christ, is going to be coming in glory at that time, the beginning of the seven last plagues, or at, at that juncture in time. So we clearly see that the true church is represented as a woman, a bride of Christ. We should be preparing the bride right now. Let's go to Galatians 4. <clears throat> Galatians 4. This is ground we've covered before, but I want to touch it at least briefly in laying the foundation for what is to come. Galatians 4. Paul is speaking here of Hagar and Sarah. And he goes down, we'll go down to verse 26. He says, But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. We are the Jerusalem which will come from above. We are the 144,000, if we qualify to be a part of it, the bride of Christ. That Jerusalem is the mother of us all. So the true church here is pictured as a woman. Second John 1, we covered this in this last series, in fact. And then I gave a whole sermon on it because some people questioned it, or someone did, I suppose. So I felt, well, let's answer that objection. I won't re-preach that sermon. You've got it on tape or available to you. So if there's still a question anywhere, go back and listen to that one, because I went through a lot of scriptures. But here in Second John, he says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, this elect lady has the truth, her children are in the truth, and not I only, but also they that have known the truth. And then he goes on to talk to the church. So the church is described as an elect lady. True church is a woman here. Let's see a little bit different example, Revelation 2. <clears throat> here I want to pick up the message to Thyatira, Revelation 2.18, and he talks about Thyatira a bit, and then he says, notwithstanding, verse 20, I have a few things against you, because you suffered that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. So here is a woman representing a religious system, Jezebel, a harlot, and she calls herself a prophetess. So it is a religious woman, a religious message that she teaches. So a woman here can be a fallen woman as well, and connected with church or religion. Uh, Revelation 12. <clears throat> we'll go through this chapter later on, but just to pick up a moment here. Here's a woman, verse 14, given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place. And I state here 
that this is speaking of the church. You can take that for the moment and let it lie, if you will, because we'll come back to it, and I think I can prove that conclusively. Now, next question. Since we've already seen that a woman can be symbolized as a church, or a church symbolizes a woman, more correctly, can a woman be symbolized in any other way? How about as a city or as a nation? Be turning to Ezekiel, if you would. In fact, you can I'll be more specific. Be turning to Ezekiel 16, if you would. But as, as you go there, understand something. Ezekiel was written approximately 120 to 140 years after the Assyrians took Israel captive in 722 B.C. Now, you can read the prophecies of Ezekiel about a captivity that is going to occur in Israel. I've already quoted Ezekiel 5, where a third of us die of this, that, and the other thing, and only a small remnant is left. You can go through those first chapters of Ezekiel and see that it is an incredible prophecy against Israel and how Israel will be absolutely demolished, destroyed. No getting around that, is there? The only problem is this was written long after Israel had been taken captive. Israel was strong before this captivity occurred. And then she was demolished, scattered. The northern ten tribes never even went back to the Holy Land or the Middle East. They scattered through Eastern Europe, finally migrated into Western Europe, to Great Britain, across to the United St or America, Canada, the United States, and from there, from England and other countries of Israel and the world, they traveled to Africa, to Australia, to New Zealand and various other places where Israel settled. Now we have to look at prophecy today, not just from the light of the Middle East, but from the light of where Israel is today. Very important to understand. When you speak of Israel today, you're not speaking of the Middle East, because there are very, very few Israelites there. And the preponderance of Jews, for that matter, don't live there either. There are more Jews in Miami and New York by far than there are in Israel. There are probably more in Russia than there are in Israel. There may even be more in Los Angeles. Well, maybe not there, but there are a lot there. So expand your thinking a little bit to understand that the end-time prophecies are played on a much bigger stage than that of the Middle East. You have to expand your thinking to include where Israel went, where the Jews went, The Assyrians took Israel captive in 722 B.C., most historians, I guess. And it is a prophecy of a future captivity. Now look at the history of Israel since then, and what has happened. From that captivity and dispersal, they scattered, never to be seen again by historians. 
Yet God had promised to Abraham that they would be as the sands of the sea, didn't he? They have to be somewhere today, and they have to number as the sands of the sea. Virtually uncountable. Ever try counting grains of sand on a beach? I've counted them on my knee, maybe. That's about it. A lot of sand there. There are a lot of Israelites somewhere. Now, we already have covered that. We know where those are. But the point is, once they disappeared, they were called the ten lost tribes. Only Judah appears here and there in history and on the scene today as accepted by most of the world. They have no idea where Israel is. And whatever few skinheads or whoever it might be, who think that they are the white homo sapien races are ridiculed. We fit in that category. Not skinheads, but with those who believe in British Israelism. That will be enough to create some persecution in itself when this thing comes down. All right. There has never been another such fall of Israel since the Assyrians took them captive. Israel, no one has even known where it is. So if there's not been another incredible fall, such as Ezekiel describes, since the Assyrians did that in the 700s, 800s actually, 600, excuse me, 722. Well, it would be 800, wouldn't it? Always, you have to count forward and backward. 722 would have been before 700. But if there's, if you not even know where it was, and you haven't seen it rise to great power and fall, then it must yet be a future event, right? Only conclusion I can come up with. So Ezekiel was written for this end time. All right, let's examine Ezekiel 16 in particular. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Now, Jerusalem was a type of the government of Israel, specifically Judah in that case. Samaria represented more the uh, northern tribes because that was their capital when they were divided. And Israel, or the, the northern tribes, went into captivity long before the southern tribes, led by Judah. So this is about Jerusalem, or the capital of Judah, Levi and Simeon. Okay? And you might throw in there the thought that Jerusalem also represents the spiritual Jew of today. Because we shall see that the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel are essentially not written to physical Israel. They are written to the church. Very specifically so. I went through that in a, ser in a sermon not too many months back, showing from Revelation 1 that John addressed the churches, that this was a revelation that Christ gave to the churches, not to physical Israel. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason physical Israel is not 
hardly even mentioned in the book of Revelation. Or, believe it or not, in Daniel. Because physical Israel has nothing to do, basically, with the prophecies at the end time other than being destroyed. We get it first. Didn't we always understand that? Germans wouldn't make the same mistake again, would they? They'd come after us first. That was our thinking. Okay? So cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. So let's think of this in a dual sense as we go through here, that it refers to physical Israel, but that it also has an application to spiritual Israel at the end. Remember, many would be offended and betray one another and kill one another and think they do God a service. That's not real Christian life. And the church also has gone after all kinds of idols as a harlot. <coughs> Back to paganism. We've seen that happen in our lives. So both applications can fit here. So cause the Jew and the spiritual Jew, you could paraphrase, to know her abominations. And say, all right, here's the message. That's what it's directed to. Now here's the message. Your birth and your nativity is of the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. Now, is that actually true? No. Father was Jacob. God is saying to Israel, you look just like a Gentile. Your mother and your father might as well have been Amorites and Hittites from the look of you. That's how he opens this. And as for your nativity, your birth, in the day that you were born, your neighbor was not cut, neither were you washed in water to suckle you, you were not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. No one seemed to care about you because of the way that you are. Question, is this written to a church only? No, it's written to the nation of Israel, or to Judah in particular, and it'll bring Israel into it later on. It includes all Israel, all the tribes, before it's done. So a woman here could represent more than just a church, couldn't it? It could represent all Israel, which is what? a nation, a people. This is written as an end-time prophecy. Remember, Israel had already gone into captivity when this was written. This is written as an end-time prophecy. It's speaking of today. Verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you polluted in your own blood, I said to you, when you were in your blood, live. Yeah, I said to you, when you were in your blood, live. What he's describing is a baby that was born, but that was sort of left on its own, not even having its navel cut, because this baby was looked upon as not having much value. Israel today does not have much value. We'll see how little as we proceed. 
But God said, in spite of yourself, please live. Live. I have caused you to multiply as the bud of the field, and you have increased and waxed and great, and you have come to excellent ornaments. Your breasts are fashioned, your hair is grown, whereas you were naked and bare. In other words, you've grown up into a woman. I don't think you could miss the analogy here, could you? Pretty plain. Now, when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, the time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. In other words, she was naked and bare and ready to make love. Yes, I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you, said the eternal God, and you became mine. Didn't he do that with ancient Israel? Made a covenant with them? Married them? So the nation was looked upon as a woman, wasn't it? God married ancient Israel. Not a church, a nation. Then washed I you with water. Yes, I thoroughly washed away the blood from you, and I anointed you with oil. Gave a special blessing. Set them apart as a specific nation. I clothed you also with bordered work, and shod you with badger skin, you tree huggers. And I girded you about with fine linen, and I covered you with silk. For God dressed Israel finely. I decked you also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon your hands, and a chain on your neck, and I put a jewel on your forehead, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown upon your head. You were decked with gold and silver, and your raiment was of fine linen and silk, embroidered work. You did eat fine flour and honey and oil, and you were exceeding beautiful, and did prosper into a kingdom. Not a church, a kingdom. This was written after the kingdom of Israel was destroyed. So it was talking about a yet future kingdom. A kingdom today. When God walked by Israel in the end time, he saw a woman ready for love that had fine ornaments that he had given. She was polluted. He did the best he could to clean her up. He started a church in Israel, a New Testament church, composed mostly of Israelites. He grafted in some Gentiles, but he was essentially from Israel. Oh, you can see, I think, the parallel here. The church is certainly involved. And yet you cannot deny that physical Israel still exists, even though they are not part of God's effort at the end time. They still have to be dealt with here. Now why did America and Britain and Western Europe have the riches of the world? Is it because our forebears in Europe were so wonderful? And we came to America, and we were so wonderful that God just couldn't help himself. He just had to bless us with everything that he possibly could give us. Is that the kind of people we are and have been? Are we a Christian nation? We call ourselves that. In reality, we're not Christian at all. Never have been. Took the name of Christ and incorporated a lot of pagan beliefs with it and called ourselves Christian. 
you and I came to understand that we'd never been Christians at all. We were good little boys and girls going to Protestant churches and thought we were saved and going to heaven. And keeping every abominable thing you can name. Sun worship, Christmas, Easter, the whole nine yards. Why were we blessed? Because of Abraham. God told Abraham, I will bless your seed as the sands of the sea. And he told them that they would be wealthy and blessed and prosper. God had to keep that promise. But that doesn't mean that we deserved it. It means that Abraham's seed deserved it because of Abraham, not because of our goodness. <laughs> that we need to clearly understand. Verse 15, But you did trust in your own beauty and played the harlot because of your renown, and poured out your fornications on every one that passed by, his it was. This woman, whom God had cleaned up, would give it to anybody that wanted it, if we can be clear. Anybody. That's not an average hooker. That's pretty flapping loose. And of your garments you did take and decked your high places with different colors and played the harlot thereupon. The like thing shall not come, neither shall it be so. You have also taken your fair jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you because of what Abraham had done. You took all this wealth and beauty and ornaments and jewels and made to yourself images of men and did commit whoredom with them. We have a Washington monument, an image of man in Israel today, at an occultic height of 555 feet, witchery, Satanism, right there on the front lawn of America's capital. That's Israel today. You made images of men and did commit whoredom with them. Strange we would make the father of our country a symbol a Felix symbol. An upright organ of man on our capital lawn. There is the image we worship today. Verse 18, And took you broidered garments and covered them. You have set my oil and my incense before them. All these wonderful gifts that God gave us as a result of Abraham's obedience, what have we done with? We've set them before others. We've looked upon them, in one sense, cheaply. Moreover, you have taken your sons and your daughters, whom you have borne to me, and these you have sacrificed to be devoured. For this of your whoredoms, or, or is this of your whoredoms a small matter? Is this a big deal or not? that you have slain my children and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them. And in all your abominations and your whoredoms, you have not remembered the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and were polluted in your blood. 
It came to pass, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the eternal God. When God pronounces a woe, it's not a small thing. It's a big deal. Remember the three woes of Revelation? Not a small thing at all. And he's pronouncing woe upon Israel here, on Judah more specifically to this point. We've sacrificed our children to the Protestant gods of sun worship and the Trinity and Christmas and Easter, sexual liberty, drugs, alcohol. Our children, for the most part, are being devoured by our culture and its society. Verse 24, that you have also built to you an imminent place and have made you a high place in every street. Hard to go through America without seeing a church, again with a Felix symbol sticking right up in front, to show what we really worship. Ironic, our movies would be right in concert with that, right? Not that sex is bad. God made that to be wonderful and good. One of the greatest blessings he ever made for man and woman. Probably the greatest in that sense. But misused and abused, it becomes a terrible curse. You have built your high place at every head of the way, and you have made your beauty to be abhorred, and have opened your feet to everyone that passed by and multiplied your hoardings. Now, is this the average hooker, I'm asking you? Don't think so. How does God view Israel today? A horror. Now, these are in God's own words. I'm not reading a Protestant commentary to you. God looks upon Israel, the nation, as a harlot today. You have also committed fornication with the Egyptians, your neighbors, greater flesh, and have increased your whoredoms to provoke me to anger. What is Egypt the symbol of? Egypt today, we don't have a whole lot to do with other than foreign aid. But Egypt, in Bible symbolism, represents sin of any and every kind. Particularly idolatry, because they worshipped everything that creeped, crawled, and swam through the river and the sun, and flies, and gnats, and fleas. They worshipped Mother Earth, Gaia. They were bunny huggers. Well, I'll be. We're fornicating with the bunny huggers as a nation. Animals are more important than human beings in the view of a lot of people today. So we fornicated with the Egyptians. Verse 27, Behold, therefore I have stretched out my hand over you, and have diminished your ordinary food, and delivered you unto the will of them that hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, symbolic of her Gentile enemies, which were ashamed of your lewd way. There are a lot of people today who are ashamed of Israel. We have led the world in the dissemination of pornography and homosexuality and various other aberrations and filthy sins. 
not just America alone, because this stuff was raging in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway back in the 50s and 60s before it really took hold in America. So all Israel is involved, not just America, but I speak mostly to an American audience, and most of the church is American. So forgive me, some of you around the world who will hear this tape, if I lay it on America most, but I think America, as a leader of Israel, deserves it the most. Thank you very much. We are about to have our food diminished. Our food, in one sense, is already diminished. It isn't food anymore. The volume is still there, but the food value is basically gone. That's why we are so sick and afflicted. And we've been delivered into the will of them that hate us. There are a few food companies, about five, who control most of the food that comes, I say food, most of the stuff we eat that comes into our grocery stores. And they hate us, obviously. There are many, many people on this earth today, many politicians, who think that the earth's population should be reduced 90%. And they're going about accomplishing that in many, many different ways. <clears throat> but as I travel around the world now and then, and I read reports here and there, I find that there are people who are ashamed of America. What we export in our films and our music are shameful. Now, it's a strange paradox in a way that they all want to come here, they all want what we have, but at the same time, they're ashamed of our ways. And many of them absolutely outright hate us. Part of it is because of the shame of our ways, and partly it is simply jealousy that they don't have all that we have. But almost universally, America is now pretty much hated. They're ashamed of us. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were unsatiable. A harlot that just never can get enough. Yes, you played the harlot with them and yet could not be satisfied. You have moreover multiplied your fornication in the land of Canaan unto Chaldea. Interesting. From the land of Canaan unto Chaldea, the nation of Chaldea, the capital city of which was Babylon. Our fornications have gone to Babylon. Babylon is not just a city, but it's a land, a nation, a people of the past. And there's a connection here that Israel has made with the Assyrian and the Chaldean, the Babylonian Empire. Yet you were not satisfied therewith. That wasn't enough for us. How weak is your heart? How weak we are. Look at us today. Look at Israel today. How weak is our heart? We will accept any abomination from anywhere. We're accepting Buddhism. We're accepting Islamic religion. We're accepting all the Eastern 
pagan, satanic religions. I was reading an article in a news magazine just last night about how transcendental meditation from Buddhism is so rapidly covering our country and is accepted by Americans. <coughs> we will do anything, try anything, it appears. How weak is your heart, says the eternal God. We do not have the heart, the resolve, the firmness, the strength to obey God. We will do anything on earth, but we will not do anything from heaven, it seems. We will not obey God. We will obey our lovers. Seeing you do all these things, the work of an imperious, whorish woman. Not just a whorish woman, but an imperious woman. And we're becoming more and more imperialistic and fornicating with all nations. And that you build your imminent place in the head of every way, and make your high place in every street, and have not been as an harlot, in that you scorn higher. This is an exceptionally great harlot. Doesn't even take money for it, but gives it away. Who are we talking about here? But as a wife that commits adultery, which takes strangers instead of her husband, they give gifts to all whores, but you give your gifts to all your lovers. Who has the greatest economic package of world aid in the world today? And you hire them, that they may come to you on every side for your whoredom. Do we have business, social, religious intercourse with the whole world? Yes, we do. How much concourse do we have with God, by comparison? This is not a Christian nation. And the contrary is in you from other women in your whoredoms, whereas none follows you to commit whoredoms, and in, in that you give a reward, and no reward is given you, therefore you are contrary. Do you know of any nation that gives us foreign aid? You can count those on the finger of one finger. No, we give it all away. Wherefore, O harlot, what does God call in time Israel? Now this is God's definition, not Martin Luther's or Calvin's or some Protestant commentaries. God calls in time Israel a harlot. Blink, blink, are you beginning to get a little bit of an inclination or a thought here? O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your filthiness was poured out, and your nakedness discovered through your whoredoms with your lovers, and with all the idols of your abominations, and by the blood of your children which you did give to them, behold, therefore, I will gather all your lovers with whom you have taken pleasure, and all them that you have loved, with all them that you have hated. I will even gather them round about against you and will discover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. God says, you want to show it? I'll show it all for you. And it is not just one nation with nine satellite nations with it, as we thought. 
we have played the harlot with the whole world, and we are going to see a worldwide coalition come against us. It says right here. Anyone we played the harlot with is going to come after us. Now, we'll get to some definitions later on. I think it still includes some of our original thinking from years ago. But just a little clue here. It may be bigger than we ever thought. In the words of God, not Daryl Henson, I will gather all your lovers. Verse 38, And I will judge you as women that break wedlock and shed blood are judged. And I will give you blood in fury and jealousy. God is going to bring our blood out and pour it on the ground. Ezekiel 5. And I will also give you into their hand, and they shall throw down your imminent place, and shall break down your high places, and they shall strip you also of your clothes, and shall take your fair jewels, and leave you naked and bare. All our wealth, Israel, is going to be taken away from us. We are in our zone, are we not? We are comfortable. We have things that no one else has ever had. Wealth beyond compare in all that the world has ever known. And every bit of it is going to be taken away. We'll be left absolutely naked and bare. This applies not only to physical Israel, but to the church. Read Revelation 3 sometime. There's something in there about some people called Laodiceans who think they have it all, but they're naked and bare. Of course, that isn't anybody in the sound of my voice or in the Church of God because they're all self-proclaimed Philadelphians, aren't they? With a great deal of pride and thinking they have everything they need spiritually. We've covered that ground before, too. If you think you're a Philadelphian, maybe you'd better consider because the very idea that you were picked out the best and considered that you are it might be an indication that you ain't what you think you is. They shall bring up a company against you, that is, a coalition, a conspiracy, a group of nations. And they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords, and they shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women, many nations. And I will cause you to cease from playing the harlots, and you shall give no hire any more. It will be to the place we couldn't even do so. So I will make my fury toward you to rest, and my jealousy shall depart from you, and I will be quiet and be no more angry. That's where the good part starts. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have fretted me in all these things. God has been upset, frustrated, and fretted to his soul. Behold, therefore, I also will recompense your way upon your head, says the Lord God, and you shall not commit this lewdness above all your abominations. Behold, everyone that uses proverbs shall use this proverb against you, saying, As is the mother, so is her daughter. What Israel was to start with, the daughter she has produced will be the same. What God destroyed Israel for originally, he will destroy us for now. You are your mother's daughter that loathes her husband and her children, 
and you are the sister of your sisters, which loathe their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite. You're just like the rest of the Gentiles. You're just as bad as they are. Back to the business we're going to find were even worse. Your elder sister is Samaria. She and her daughters that dwell at your left hand. Here he brings not just the Jews or the three southern tribes, but all Israel into this, Samaria being the capital of the northern tribes. Your elder or greater sister is Samaria. And greater is a, I think, better translation, uh, bigger sister. Perhaps older, but bigger mainly. Ten tribes as opposed to three, in other words. Your younger sister that dwells at your right hand is Sodom and her daughters. What is the epitome of sin in the Bible? Egypt, Sodom. He called us Egyptians earlier. He's called us Gentiles in our actions all the way through. And now he equates us to Sodom. What laws did they just strike down in this country? Laws against sodomy. Now it is legal for men to live and have, you can't call it sex, I guess, a relationship with men. And it isn't long before they can marry. They can already marry each other now in Canada, part of Israel. And it'll be here soon. God looks upon Israel not only as a whore in the end time, but the worst kind, Sodom. As I live, says the Lord God, Sodom your sister has not done, she nor her daughters, as you have done, you and your daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Let's look at some of the sins of Sodom. First listed is pride. Is there any country you can think of in the world today that would epitomize pride? How often do you see a bumper sticker since 911 that says, Proud to be an American? Fly the flag. <laughs> Let's be proud. First sin listed in Sodom. Fullness of bread. In other words, we have everything we could possibly want, it would seem. every material thing almost that could be desired. We are a very materialistic society. We dote on all the wonderful things that we have. There is sin involved in that, the sin of covetousness, one of the Ten Commandments, and lust. We lust for and covet anything material, it seems. Fullness of bread was a sin of Sodom. And abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. We love our leisure time, don't we? I deserve to flake out on the couch and just watch TV and not have to use my mind or do anything at all for X number of hours. 
because I am who I am. Am I out of tape? Ten minutes? We'll finish. <clears throat> so idleness was in her and in her daughters, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Our street people are getting to be more and more and more because we are so selfishly self-indulged. But we can really care less about our neighbor or anybody else as long as we have our job and our car and our house and our goodies. Not much like Sodom, are we? And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Are we an arrogant nation? Therefore I took them away as I saw good. Neither was Samaria committed half of your sins, so you have multiplied your abominations more than they and have justified your sisters in all your abominations. <laughs> Let's get down to verse 55. And when your sister Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former estate, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former estate, then you and your daughters shall return to your former estate. For your sister Sodom was not mentioned by your mouth in the day of your pride. We stand alone. We sit a queen. Before your wickedness was discovered, as at the time of your reproach of the daughters of Syria, do we have a reproach of the Arabs today? Does a whole Islamic world hate us with a passion? Pretty fit description, isn't it? And all that are round about her and the daughters of the Philistines, which despise you round about, all those nations who surrounded ancient Israel, are typified by Philistines. Those peoples essentially are still there, the Arabic nations, the Islamic world, about a billion of them, and they hate our guts, to put it mildly, fairly mildly. You have borne your lewdness and your abomination, says the Eternal, for thus says the Lord God, I will even deal with you as you have done, which have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Israel has made a lot of covenants with a lot of people. And today, what do we do? We say, I'm not attending your meeting. I'm not signing your accord. I will do as I please. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish to you an everlasting covenant, a new covenant, in other words. Then you shall remember your ways and be ashamed when you shall receive your sisters, your elder and your younger, and I will give them to you for daughters, but not by your covenant, not your terms, not your way, my covenant, says God. He has not offered that covenant to all Israel yet. He's only offered it to the church. He will offer it someday in the millennium and the great white throne judgment to all Israel. But today that new covenant has only been offered to you and me. So we are brought into the picture here. And I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth any more because of your shame, when I am pacified toward you for all that you have done, says the Lord God. This is a pretty severe witness against Israel and Judah. God looks upon our peoples, Israel today, descended from Jacob, as the worst kind of harlot that has ever existed. And we go back a long way in that, back to to. Israel historically, and how she was destroyed for her concourse with the Gentiles. Now we will examine a little more of this next time, but let's 
see that we have established that God can look upon a nation, a whole people, Israel, as a harlot. We'll go from there.